Before we come to our text in Acts chapter 2, we're going to read from our confessions from Lord's Day 18. Lord's Day 18, which has to do with Christ's ascension into heaven. And you can find that in your book of forms and prayers on pages 218, 219, and 220. And we're asked this first of all, what do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. But in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. And then question 49, how does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, He is our advocate in heaven in the presence of His Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, His members, up to Himself. Third, He sends His Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above, where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. And now our text comes to us from Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The particular focus of this sermon is going to be on verse 33. But that's right in the middle of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And I realize that the bulletin says Acts 2, 22 through 36, but I can't seem to help expanding my passage every time I read the Scriptures. So we're going to begin reading at Acts chapter 2, verse 14. We'll read all the way down to verse 41. So Acts chapter 2, verse 14. This is the Word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your, old, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and this here is Psalm 16, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So far, a reading from God's Word. May God add His blessing as that Word is explained this afternoon. Now, this afternoon, we're beginning a series that will be carried on over the course of the next few months, a series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And this sermon serves kind of as an introduction to that series. This, this sermon is on Christ, the giver of the Holy Spirit. And the way this sermon is going to break down is that the first part of this sermon will be on the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but also the need of the Holy Spirit for the church. 
And the second point will deal more, deal, deal more particularly with Acts chapter 2, verse 33. And the first thing that I want to tell you this afternoon is that the Holy Spirit has never been idle. Now, that, that may seem obvious to you, but it's not always made obvious in the way that we speak about our triune God. Take, for example, creation. We ordinarily speak of the Father as the Creator when we're speaking in, in creedal terms, when we're confessing uh, our faith using the Apostles' Creed or using the, the Heidelberg Catechism. We speak of God the Father as the Creator, but that is never in order to say that the Son and the Spirit were not also intimately involved in the work of creation. So all of you, no doubt, know that John begins his gospel by, by absolutely demanding that we affirm the full deity of Christ, saying all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians, in addition, Paul tells us that by Christ, all things were created, all things in heaven, all things in earth, all things visible, all things invisible. But the Spirit was also intimately involved in that work of creation. In Genesis 1, already at the very beginning, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. See, the person of the Trinity most associated with, 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 with bringing life where life did not exist before is there at the very beginning, before creation, hovering over the surface of that lifeless void, ready to bring life into being from nothing as soon as it was time for time to begin. And this is re-emphasized in Psalm 104, where the psalmist sings to God, when you send forth your spirit, they are created, you renew the face of the ground. And so we see that everything that God is said to do in the Old Testament is in fact done by all three persons of the Trinity. But this, and this is actually true of every single act of God in the Old Testament. Whenever Yahweh God, whenever the Lord God speaks or acts, it is the triune God who is speaking and acting. We can think sometimes, and this is a wrong way of thinking, we can think sometimes that it was the Father who was doing all the work back in the Old Testament, and then the Son and the Spirit pick up the slack in the New Testament. But this is a wrong-headed way of thinking. See, the nature of progressive revelation teaches that, that, that we should interpret the Old Testament in light of the, the New Testament. What's clear in the New Testament is often obscure and, and, and hidden in the Old Testament. One Bible teacher said, and I think this is a good illustration, this is B.B. Warfield, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings nothing into it that wasn't there before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed back in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation, and here and there, almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament relation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. There is much in God which was true back in the Old Testament, but, but which was not clear to God's saints in that Era. Now, why am I saying all this? 
I'm saying this to point out that the Old Testament saints were keenly aware that what they possessed was not all that God would give to His church. The Old Testament saints were keenly aware that there was much of God that they did not know. They caught glimpses of the Trinity here and there, but the nature of God was not as clearly revealed as it would be in the ministry and teaching of Christ and then also of His apostles. But again, the Old Testament saints, even those most involved in the Spirit's great work, they understood that there was something, there was some great need in the hearts and the souls of God's people that just was not yet being met. They were keenly aware that something better was yet to arrive. They were more blessed with the knowledge of God than any other nation around them, and they knew this. Psalm 147, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They don't know his rules. Israel as a nation were a people blessed with the presence of God and the power of God and the revelation of God more than any other nation in the world. But this foretaste This foretaste only whetted their appetites even more for the fullness of God's blessing. And I'll demonstrate that using two Old Testament prophets, Moses and Jeremiah. Now Moses was was charged by God with being the people of Israel's link to God. God spoke to Israel through Moses. But at some point, Moses realized that this job was just too much for him. The people were constantly complaining despite all of God's grace. And Moses himself even says, I I am not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And he says to God, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. And so God comes to him with a solution to this problem. He says to Moses, gather from the people... Seventy men of the elders of Israel, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself anymore. So Moses, so Moses gathers these men, he, he, he gathers them from the community, and, and they come with him to the tent of meeting. And the Lord takes a portion of the spirit that's on Moses and puts it on those 70 elders. And here already, if you're listening carefully, you're seeing some parallels. You're hearing some parallels between this story of Moses and the elders and the story of Jesus and the disciples at Pentecost. The spirit that was put on Moses was put on these elders, but the spirit that's put on Jesus is put on the whole congregation. And there's this other element in the story that actually highlights the need for a greater anointing, that highlights the need for a greater mediator than Moses, the the need for more spirit-endowed people than these 70 elders. The spirit happens to rest not only on these 70 men, but also on two men who who were in the camp, not by the tent of meeting, but in the camp. And they begin prophesying in the camp. Again, a parallel to the Pentecost passage. And Joshua says to Moses, Moses, should I, should I stop them from prophesying? And Moses says, no, no, Joshua, don't stop them from prophesying. I wish that all of God's people could be prophets. I wish that all of God's people could be anointed with the Spirit in this way. 
And hundreds of years later, God promises through his prophet Joel that one day the Spirit will, in fact, come upon all of God's people. Not only the elders of God's people, but every single, even every single manservant and maidservant among the people will become a prophet. And then moving from Moses now to Jeremiah. Jeremiah sees God's people go into exile. They have not been able to honor God as they were supposed to do. In fact, they were not even willing to obey God, to listen to His commands. The same hardness of heart that characterized Israel back in the days of Moses also characterized Israel in the days of Jeremiah. The law, Jeremiah realizes, was unable to make God's people holy. In fact, all the law could do was emphasize their sin and drive them to God. And so God's people, full of guilt, they're driven out of their land into the land of Babylon. And just as Moses had felt their need so very keenly nearly nearly a thousand years earlier, so now Jeremiah and Israel feel their need for an intervention by God very, very keenly. They realize that they need God to act on their behalf. They need God to make them people who will obey His law, not only with circumcised bodies, but with circumcised hearts. They realized that the letter of the law had killed them. It had become a ministry of death carved in letters on stone. And they realized, and Jeremiah prophesies about this, they realized that what the people of Israel, what all people needed was a new covenant, not carved in letters on stone, but a new covenant of the life-giving Spirit. And here in Acts 2, finally coming to our passage, here in Acts 2, we see their need felt so keenly for so many years, now finally being met. Their need for God to do a mighty work among His people, to make them all prophets, to bring their hearts in line with His, is finally being met. And the Spirit arrives in absolutely spectacular form, but but He's not arriving out of nowhere. He's not arriving out of nowhere, and then that will be the, the, the... the burden of the rest of this sermon. He's not arriving out of nowhere. Christ had told his disciples that he would come only a few days earlier. You can read about this in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. While staying with them, while staying with his disciples during those 40 days between his resurrection and ascension, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this was by no means the first time that he had promised the Holy Spirit. In John 16, for example, he had told them, I am going to send him to you. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will lead you in all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take, the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. And now here in Acts 2, verse 33, we see Christ, the giver of the Spirit. And here in our remaining time, we'll, we'll examine two things together. First, the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's in the first half of verse 33. And then second, the pouring and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's in the second half of verse 33. So the first half, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, before we dive into this first half of the verse, a, a preliminary question. Is it actually better to have Christ in heaven than on earth? Is it actually better to have Christ in heaven instead of on earth? I mean, think of this from the perspective of parents with a sick child. When Jesus was on earth, he healed many people. And you, can, and, you, and you can think of those parents thinking, well, if I could have just brought this child to Jesus, he would have healed my child. And, and the church during this time, the church is perplexed with all kinds of different doctrinal issues, all kinds of different discipline issues. Wouldn't it be great if Christ was here in our midst to solve all those problems for us? Is it actually better to have Christ in heaven instead of on earth? Well, Christ answers this question in this way in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in answer to that question, is it actually better to have Christ in heaven instead of on earth? I've got four answers for you. The first one is this. Christ loves you more than anyone else is capable of loving you. So you know that nothing he's going to be doing is, is, is for your ill, only for your good. Secondly, if Christ is not in heaven, then you're not going there either. If Christ is not in heaven, then you're not going there either. He told us that he was going to return to his Father there to prepare a place for us. And thirdly, If Christ is not in heaven, then he's not at the Father's right hand interceding for us. Our high priest needs to be in the sanctuary at the Father's right hand, constantly pleading on behalf of his beloved. And then fifth and, uh, sorry, fourth and finally, if Christ is not in heaven, as he said here in John 16, 7, if Christ is not in heaven, the Holy Spirit is not coming down. John 7, verse 39, while Jesus was ministering on earth, John tells us, as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Did you hear that? The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's like the Spirit was waiting in heaven, just waiting for Jesus to finish His work and ascend to the Father's right hand so that He could descend on Christ's people. And this had been the plan from before the creation of the world. The Father planned to send the Redeemer into the world. The Son planned to redeem the world. The Holy Spirit planned to apply that redemption. The Holy Spirit would be sent from the Father and from the Son to do the great work of new creation that Christ had earned and won for His beloved. And so being exalted to the right hand of God, Christ receives the promise of the Holy Spirit. And here we see, don't we, that the Holy Spirit had been promised to God's people all along in the Old Testament, but Christ in particular had been doing all that He did on earth, knowing that once He finished all that work, He was going to be rewarded for that work in His glorification. He was going to receive the Holy Spirit, which He would then pour out on His people. It was a promise made to the people back in the Old Testament, but especially this promise that is mentioned in verse 33, this promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise made to Christ. 
the one who represented the end of the ages and the, and, and the dawning of the new creation. Indeed, Christ, who was anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, Christ, who was empowered and sanctified and guided and anointed with the Holy Spirit more than any other who was before him, he was promised the Holy Spirit as a reward, as an inheritance, at the greatest, as the greatest of all gifts that he then could pass on to his people. Now, where, you might ask, where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see that this was the the agreement that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had before the foundation of the world? Well, we see it in Psalm 110. It's a psalm that we sang together. It's It's a psalm that's really at the heart of this section of Peter's message at Pentecost. It's a prophecy of what, of what had happened before creation, before time, but also a prophecy of what is happening here in Acts chapter 2. And here we transition from the promise to the fulfillment of that promise, from the promise to the pouring. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what does it look like now that the Spirit has been poured out on Christ's people? Well, in Psalm 110, the, the Holy Spirit gives us, sorry, the psalmist gives us this account of a conversation between God, the Father, and Christ. The Father says to His Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And here in, in, in Acts chapter 2, it's not terribly clear what on earth is actually going on. The Lord said to my Lord, who's the Lord and who is my Lord? Well, Christ explains this. The Lord is Yahweh. My Lord, David's Lord, is Christ. So Yahweh says to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This was the Father's arrangement with the Son, that once the Son had finished His work, He would be exalted to the Father's right hand. But not only, from the, uh, not, not only that, then speaking of and to the ascended Christ, the one who is seated at the Father's right hand, as the, as the psalmist says, the Father then says, Yahweh sends forth from Zion Christ's mighty scepter. Now a scepter, of course, is a symbol of authority. A scepter is a symbol of someone's rule over, over a nation or a kingdom. And how is it now that Christ reigns among His people? Well, it's through His Spirit. It's through that same Spirit that that, that both Moses and Jeremiah had longed to see. And now what is the result? What is the result of this scepter being extended from Zion? What is the result of this Spirit being sent from the presence of God? Well, the psalmist explains this as well. Your people will offer themselves to you freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So two things happen here in Psalm 110. First, Christ's people formerly unwilling and stubborn and hard-hearted, even enemies of God, are made willing by a work of Christ's Spirit. And then secondly, Christ's people are arrayed in holy garments. They are made holy. And as we know, nothing in all of creation is holy if God himself does not make it holy. Now what exactly is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit? You might know that and we, we covered this extensively at the beginning of the sermon, that, that back in the Old Testament, the Spirit was not passive. In fact, God's Spirit is mentioned several times as coming upon people. In the Old Testament, the craftsmen who were tasked with building the tabernacle and all the furnishings for the tabernacle were, were said to have been given God's Spirit to assist them, to enable them to carry out that task. 
And then in the book of Judges, several of the judges as well. They, they're, they're set aside to rule God's people and to rescue God's people. And the Spirit comes upon them, rests on them. And David says in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, indicating that God had given His Holy Spirit to David as well to carry out the work of ruling God's people. So we're to recognize, first of all, that the Spirit was indeed active in the Old Testament church, the Old Testament nation of Israel. And we've seen this already, haven't we, in the anointing of the 70 elders and the, and the two rogue prophets, if you will, in the camp of Israel in the book of Numbers. So the, the, the Spirit came upon certain individuals in the Old Testament. When God had a special work to do among His people, He sent His Spirit out to equip them for those tasks. Had this not been the case, the prophets would never have been able to prophesy. But all of these all of these tricklings, if you will, all these tricklings of the Holy Spirit only pointed forward to something greater yet to come, the pouring that was to come, a, a generous pouring out of the Spirit. The, the Spirit was not poured out generally upon God's people back in the Old Testament. What happens here on the day of Pentecost is really a work of God unlike any other, a, a definite break with everything that God had done before. God was now pouring out His Spirit on all flesh, indiscriminately, on all his people. And while we may not experience in our day-to-day living of the Christian life the amazing signs that accompanied the Spirit's coming on, on that first day on Pentecost, the Spirit is no less active among us today than he was back then. Because what do we see even today? We see the, we see the answer or the, or the, the response to Peter's urging in, in verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Even today, the Spirit who once hovered over creation and made it spring to life, even today, the Spirit who once spoke by the prophets and worked through the saints of old. Even today, the Spirit who filled and empowered God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the Spirit who has now been given by the all-victorious Christ to men, to women, to boys and girls, to employers and employees from every nation under heaven to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now just to close things off, There's one last thing that we ought to see. And that is that the work of the Holy Spirit, the work that the Holy Spirit has come to do is really a continuation of Christ's work. We ought not to think that that Luke is is the recording of Christ's work and Acts is the recording of the Spirit's work. The two books belong together. The, the, The Gospels belong with the book of Acts. And we see this really, don't we, in the very beginning of Acts, the introduction to the book. Where, where, where Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Implying that this book is the continuation of that work of Christ. In the book of Acts, the second volume of his two-book set, if you will, he tells Theophilus all that Jesus continued to do now that he was in heaven instead of on earth. So you understand it, 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 it's wrong to construct too solid, too firm a line, a barrier between the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit came to do a great new work, a work unlike any in the history of the world, but this work is not to be divorced from the work of Christ. In fact, it's impossible without the work of Christ. You understand Christ is the first fruits of a glorious harvest. The first fruits comes first. 
And then comes the rest of the harvest. And believers, the church, Christ's people, they are, we are the fullness of that glorious harvest. But it's all one harvest. Christ the firstfruits, we the fullness. Christ the head, we the body. Christ the vine, we the branches. Christ the wellspring. But we are also... Sorry, but, but, but living water also flows into and, and, and through us and, and from us. And in our catechism, we also confess that we are members of Christ, and so we share in His anointing. And so you see, there's this organic unity between the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. Not only did the Spirit fill Christ and anoint Christ and empower Christ to do His work, but that same Spirit is now given to the church as a gift as an inheritance promised to Christ for His work, a gift promised back in the Old Testament to the Old Testament church to carry out and carry on Christ's work. And as someone who's been promised to every single one of us as well, by Christ, the giver of the Spirit. So how should we finish? How should we finish this sermon? Well, with this simple encouragement. Christian, you've been, giving, you've been given an incredible privilege. Christ has died for you. Christ has risen from the dead for you. Christ has ascended into heaven for you, and Christ has given you the very Spirit of God. And Christ has promised you that if you pray for this Spirit, you will receive more and more and more and more. So Christian, pray. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, oh, we thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that you took pity on us and would not leave us in our state of depravity and poverty. But in love, you sent Jesus, your Son, to be our propitiation, to be our atoning sacrifice, to take away our guilt and to take away your wrath. And we thank you that Jesus Christ is not on earth, but is in heaven, sitting at your right hand. We thank you that Christ has sent us the Spirit, the Spirit without whom we could never come to you the Spirit without whom our hearts would never be drawn to You, the Spirit without whom we would still be dead in our sins. So, Father, we do ask, we do ask that You would give us Your Holy Spirit, and that by the Spirit's power You would draw us to Christ, By the Spirit's power, you would draw us not to earth, but to heaven where Christ is seated at your right hand. By the Spirit's power, make us holy. By the Spirit's power, give us a joy in Christ. By the Spirit's power, make us living sacrifices, worthy citizens of your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.